We're not crazy, the system is. Tune in to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, Wednesdays 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Time, on Pacifica Affiliate WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio. Produced by Freedom Center and the Icarus Project. Streaming live, podcasting, and archived at madnessradio.net. Thanks for tuning in to Madness Radio. I'm your host, Will Hall. And Madness Radio is uh, co-produced by the Freedom Center, which is a local Northampton, Massachusetts, advocacy, support, and activism community that's run by and for people who go through extreme states who've been labeled with mental illness and our allies. And you can check out our website, which is freedom-center.org. We have a number of different uh, things going on. We have some free holistic health services, which are open to the entire community, free yoga class, free acupuncture clinic. Uh, We have writing groups. We have a support group. We do this radio show. We have a lot of public speaking events, educational um, events. We do a lot of local activism around different uh, issues. And the Madness Radio is also co-produced by the Icarus Project, which is a growing national network. Actually, there are some folks who are involved internationally as well with the Icarus Project, Um, people who have um, gone through extreme states, been in the mental health system, dealing with psychiatric diagnoses, but don't um, embrace the medical view of what we're going through, are looking to creativity and spirituality and holistic health and different kinds of alternative ways And my guest today is Krista McKinnon, who is an early intervention uh, family worker with the Family Outreach and Response Program. She does advocacy with um, families in Toronto, Canada. And the Family Outreach and Response Program, um, I'll just read their website um, description here, supports and educates families and friends during the recovery process. Their purpose is to build on the strengths and resilience of families to enhance their lives. Um, FOR strives to work with a diverse group of families and especially with those who cannot readily access support. Um, They are supported by the Community Resources Connections of Toronto and has government funding. And um, Krista, I'll read her bio. Krista is an eclectic hobbyist, passionate about art, mothering her two boys, photography, writing, knitting, and mental health recovery. At 16, she was hospitalized after experiencing mania and psychosis and was given the impression she would always have to struggle with a disorder called manic depression, now usually referred to as bipolar. Against the general messages she received about herself from doctors, society, and family, Krista decided to ignore the diagnosis, not believing any of it. Krista has lived a healthy and mostly medication-free sense, free life since, finding her own meaning in the experience of psychosis and finding alternative forms of support elsewhere for maintaining her wellness. Um, now she puts her heart in mental health, supporting families and understanding the many ways they can be helpful to someone they love when psychosis and mental health issues and labeling have affected the family. So thanks for joining us today, Krista. It's nice to be here. Yeah, so I'm really interested in the work that you um, that you do. It sounds like you have a very different perspective from the kind of mainstream medicalization uh, model and you yourself being a survivor, someone who's sensitive to the, the downside of psychiatry and the mental health system. But maybe you could just start us off here by telling us what uh, happened. I read your bio and it sounds like you were hospitalized and, and labeled when you were 16. What was what was going on for you when that happened? I think it started when I was even younger than 16. Um, when I was 14, I um, had a lot of preoccupation with death and um, pretty quickly moved into 
suicidal tendencies and self-harm and all these kinds of things. And um, I eventually talked to my parents and said that, uh, you know, I was, I was having trouble. And they sent me to my family doctor who pretty much just said, you know, go home and keep an eye on her. This is typical hormonal angst or something. So when you say self-harm, you were cutting or burning or something or what? Yeah, I was cutting myself a lot. And um, I think that that's really what propelled me to tell my family that I needed help because I um, I just did, got tired of hiding it. Wow. And it's in you were also suicidal, sounds like. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I was starting to, like, my own behavior was starting to scare me at that point. Mm-hmm. That, was, that was when I was just my first year of high school. So the doctor just said it was hormonal and just part of life and just, just ignore it. Yeah, which um, amazes me to this day when I think about that. And I, sometimes I wonder what he could have done differently. Like, I wonder, had he steered me into the hospital system earlier, what, where that would have led? Like, you know, I don't know necessarily if it, you know, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, so I went, I went home, and my parents kept an eye on me to the best of their ability, but I, I got very involved in uh, just escapism, so I started doing a lot of drugs, uh, speed and pot, and especially LSD. So, um, ah, LSD. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we can be, we'll maybe talk a little bit more about that later, but, uh, <laughs> but for you, it, wasn't a, it doesn't sound like it was a positive Thing. It sounds like it was a pretty self-destructive period of your life. Yeah, and it's even yeah. When I was even when I was on um, taking a lot of drugs, I was really having paranoid thoughts all the time, and it wasn't like this this fun, you know, living the life doing drugs. It wasn't like that. It was really uh, awful. A lot of it was really awful, um, really negative thoughts. So, but then um, something happened, like some sort of which happened in me, and I, uh, I, I realized I was doing too much. I was starting every. I was just feeling disoriented all the time, so I stopped doing drugs. Um, and even in times of sobriety, I would have hallucinations, and um, like I'd be reading a book, and the words from the pages of the book would actually jump out at me, and so these kinds of things were happening to me a lot even when I was not on drugs anymore. And um, I just thought it was real. I figured I'm, I'm not on drugs, so this is, this is real. This is what's really happening. Um, I didn't, it never dawned on me that, that it was hallucination even, like it just was real to me. What other kinds of things were happening? The, the words coming off of the book, page, and what else? Yeah, well, I started to read a lot of literature about animal cruelty, and I became a vegetarian, and then I... I got more involved in reading a lot of this literature, and it was, um, I got really obsessed with food, and I started to have really paranoid thoughts about food. So it got to the point that I, I had to just stop eating completely because I eventually became vegan, and then, and then you know, systematically I just eliminated every kind of possible food um, because somehow in my mind it was all related to cruelty, and I, like, I just couldn't take a part of it, so I stopped eating. Um, and I didn't eat at all for, I think it was about three days that I didn't eat. And at this point, I was um, really, everything was happening really fast in my mind. So um, 
it was really hard to follow for any for someone listening to me it was hard to follow any train of thought because my mouth couldn't keep up with the, what was happening in my mind so i was just i was sounding very disjointed to people who were listening to me speak um my pace was probably tripled um to what i'm speaking now and this wasn't this wasn't happening because you were taking drugs this is something that was going on after you had stopped taking yeah this the was drugs. i was completely clean at this point at this point you know i'd been off for at least Three months or so like I had completely stopped because I was just I just I made the decision to stop because I was feeling so disoriented all the time and uh, the but the disorientation kind of stuff never went away it, it just didn't go away so but because I wasn't on drugs anymore I just thought that was normal I guess like I didn't realize that 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 wasn't normal mm. um, so when so what happened then so then at some point you started to get back involved with the mental health system yeah well I um I, it was. I, it got to the point that I wasn't sleeping either. Um, I didn't need sleep, and I was. I was convinced that I, because I didn't need sleep and I didn't need food, um, that I must be some sort of superhuman. So I had this superhuman strength, and clearly I was no ordinary human being. So I, um, you know, I, I had these messages from above that I had to, you know, go and find. A lot. Of, I had a lot of um, unusual beliefs. So eventually, wait, um, wait, wait a second. Tell me more about your unusual beliefs. Yeah, <laughs> these messages, <laughs> these messages from above. That what was about a mission or some special destiny or something? Or yeah, like I was, I was a 16 year old girl living in Hamilton, Ontario, which is um, about an hour and a half away from Toronto, which is a big city. And uh, I had this belief that um, I was destined to uh, find my deserved fame and fortune if I headed down to Toronto, where where, you know, that's where I was going to make my way as this, you know, some famous artist, musician, philosopher, I don't, I don't know. Or maybe, exactly. a, maybe a famous mental health advocate who's on the radio or something, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that, w- that wasn't on the radar back then. <laughs> right, right. But, um, but uh, yeah, and I remember seeing, you know, like the silliest things when I think back now, I remember seeing Christy Brinkley on the cover of InStyle magazine, and my name um, was Krista Binkle. My maiden name is Binkle. So when I saw her on the magazine, it's so hard to explain, but but to me that was like, that wasn't really her. That was like yeah. the messages from above telling me that that I need to go and, and find my place and, and go get my deserved fame. Yeah, the, the idea of signs and omens and the media communicating with us. And uh, yeah, I've definitely had those. And they're very, they're very real synchronicities on one level. And mm. on the other level, they're just completely, you, they're just meaningless, <laughs> you know. So I want, uh, maybe we can talk more about that a little bit um, yeah, well, later. Um, because speaking, But speaking of that, when I, was, when I eventually got um, taken into hospital <laughs> against my will, I, was, I remember being in the interrogation room or whatever you want to call it and there's a camera in that room right in the top corner and i remember looking up at the camera and thinking like that that this was all part of of my they were connected to the people that were propelling me into fame and but but that i was being mistreated and it, it's all so hard to to explain it's so hard to explain no, but it makes it makes perfect sense to me it's very it's very resonant with my own sense of just everything being completely full of this meaning and destiny and purpose and there's this larger plan that's unfolding and it's mm-hmm. there's all these synchronicities and coincidences and things that supposedly are random and unrelated 
like a television camera or something that you see in a magazine are really directly speaking to your own mm-hmm. journey and your path and they're and they're guiding you and telling you what you need to do yeah and uh but that can get really out of out of hand i mean there's a side of that that's very mystical and very interesting I'm like wow what's the truth in that but there's a part of it that's like whoa this is really out of control and when when was the point that you ended up in the in the hospital well i i was i was having a lot of um a lot of that finding meaning in things that other people wouldn't. So um, my behavior just got so bizarre to other people that, that, I mean, I remember watching, sitting on the ground and watching ants crawl and then on the, they were building ant hills and it was like this huge metaphor for life. <laughs> and I, I was like getting so much meaning from sitting there watching these ants. So I think that, a, you know, a series of accumulated behaviors that, that from the outside looked just ridiculous. So you were you were really absorbed in watching the ant hill, and you weren't responding to the people around you, and you were just yeah. completely like just staring at this ant hill and not listening to people. And yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or the opposite would be true. And if I was talking to somebody, I would be speaking so quickly and not following any kind of linear train of thought. That mm-hmm. even if I were to try and communicate with somebody else, the the reality I was living in, it it wouldn't. Um, you know, transcend the barriers of my reality versus theirs, right? Right, and sort of carried away and really excited in all the amazing discoveries that you've that you've made and all these realizations that you that you have. Hmm. So I was. Um, so I think what I was at this point when I got when I was when I got caught, <laughs> um, I was heading to Toronto and I had my guitar with me and I was like going to go find my fame. And uh, so you my, you ran away from home. Well, no, kind I was of, actually, no. <laughs> I was staying with friends at the time anyway. I was, my, uh, my family was on vacation, and I was staying with friends of the family who, you know, very close friends of the family. And uh, it wasn't really, I didn't think of it like I was running away from home. I was just, like, going to live my life. It wasn't, I wasn't running away, but, but I was leaving anyway. <laughs> and, um, and you I got- had every intention of connecting back with the people in my life. I wasn't running away, but... But you got caught. I got caught, though, and um, I was quickly ushered to hospital. So. How did, what, how did, what, what happened? You got caught. They, they, you were breaking the no staring at anthills rule, or what, <laughs> what is it that got you caught? I think it was just, you know, I don't know, because I was totally in my own world at that point, so I have no idea what the conversations were behind the scenes. <laughs> but um, I think that uh, there were just a series of people that were saying, like, what's happening with her? She's not herself. And I don't. Ah, uh, I see. And I don't even. Re- it's funny because I remember something so vividly, but I don't even remember who it was who put me in the car and took me to the hospital. Oh, I see. And they brought you to the hospital, and then you were admit admitted, and then you were forcibly admitted, or yes, I was. Uh, yeah, it was definitely against my will because what? I felt that I was being um, held captive, and I was being kidnapped, and I was um, being taken away from my divine purpose in life, and. It was definitely not something that I wanted to go do. I really felt I was being derailed. So you were arguing with them in the oh, yeah. emergency room. And did they, you, did they actually use physical violence against you? Did they, did they restrain you or grab you or anything? Uh, yeah, not, not... I mean, I ended up staying in the hospital for five weeks. So at first, it, um, like I think the first day that I was admitted, I didn't really have any... There was no no uh, restraining or anything that went on but that happened that did happen later because i i refused to take medication 
So, but when you first went in and you said, no, I, I, this is kidnapping. This is, I, you're interrupting my divine destiny. How did they actually keep you there? It's, it's really hard for me to remember that. Oh, okay. You were really, you were in such an out there kind of state that a yeah, lot of the memories are Yeah, it's really hard to there. remember. I remember them just asking me a lot of questions and just asking me so many questions. Yeah. And part of it, I think that they maybe wooed me a little bit, like, because part of it, I think in all the question asking, I felt like I started to think that maybe somehow they're connected to getting me to this, you know, maybe this is an avenue to get to that, my greater path that I'm... I think that I, I sort of went along with it to some extent because I don't, it wasn't a really like violent admission kind of thing. Like I think I was like, okay, I'll, I'll see what, what, what's going on here. And I kind of, I think I just went along with it the first day, but it, but it wasn't, nobody was telling me I was crazy at that point or anything. So I don't know. And then you were there for about five weeks and what, how did that go? Yeah, I was there for five weeks and I was in an adult. It's different now in, um, in Ontario, now people um, generally get sent to a first episode psychosis um, award that's specific to first episode psychosis. Really, that's really that's very interesting because that's mm-hmm. not a general policy um, in U.S. hospitals, at least not that I that I know of. Um, maybe we'll come back to that. So, but okay. this was a while ago. You're 27 this, now. I'm 27 now. Yeah. So this was 11 years ago. So you kind of this was before the first episode policies came right. in and you ended up in just the general psych ward with with the adults right exactly for five yeah. weeks yeah and um yeah like my experience in the hospital was completely traumatizing to me and it was my experience in the hospital was worse than the deepest depths of any of my depressions that i've had like it was completely traumatizing to me the experience worse than the suicide alley or the cutting yeah. or the not eating or any of that yeah yeah, it was definitely worse. And, how was um, it? How was it traumatizing? It was um, a lot of. Well, I mean, on one hand, you know, you're experiencing this really magical thing, and you have all these fabulous beliefs about yourself, and then, and then you're told that you're just uh, you're actually disabled, and you're not anything special, and you probably never will be because you're just you're disabled, and it's it was. Um, like really crushing to my spirit, uh, the messages that I got from the psychiatrists and from the treatment team. And even the, the type of therapy, like I remember um, having to repeat after my psychiatrist, she would list my symptoms. So she would say, I experienced delusions of grandeur. And I would have to repeat after her, I experienced delusions of grandeur. And this was supposed to create some sort of awareness in me as to, uh, I don't know, preventing another kind of episode, I, I suppose, but um, what the result of that was that I just felt completely dehumanized and that I was being pigeonholed and, and judged and misunderstood. And they um, gave you a diagnosis of manic depression or bipolar disorder? Right. Yeah, and said that I would need to be on medication for the rest of my life and that also um, being on that medication wouldn't prevent me from having another episode. So even though I would have to take this for the rest of my life, I would still have to um, always see a psychiatrist and always talk about my symptoms to make sure that I wasn't having any and and uh, that I would be living this kind of parole. <laughs> so that was that was the that was the general message that I received from the people who were supposed to be helping me. Wow! And then and you they put you on medication at this point in the hospital and yes, I was on um, 
I was on a, a lot of different medications, and I remember putting a big fuss up because I wanted to know exactly what it, what it was that I was taking. And I don't know if they don't get that, if, they don't, if people don't normally ask that, but it was, I remember it being quite a big deal, like actually getting the information of what meds I was on. Like it wasn't that that was just handed over to me. It was, I remember having to fight for that information. Yeah, it's actually it's in Massachusetts, um, here in the States, the, um, the mental health regulations for the state are that all, all people who receive medication are supposed to get informed consent information about mm-hmm. those meds and they just they, they don't they just don't do it they just yeah. don't do it and um in fact i know someone who's a, a friend of mine at the freedom center she was told she was in a hospital she was told to take a tranquilizer and then she just asked do i have the right to say no and they didn't answer her and then she asked again and then they uh, held her down and injected her just for just for talking back so it's a common kind of thing that happened were the medications helpful to you or did they were they positive in any way or um they were awful (laughs) they were really awful and uh i i mean i i don't know what would have happened had i not taken the medications like what what did happen in my five-week stay at the hospital was that i stopped having unusual beliefs um whether or not that happened because of the medication or because I just came around. I don't know. Did you start getting regular sleep and start eating food when you were in the hospital? Because that I, often is something that helps bring people back into this reality. Right. It, actually, that's the one thing I can say the hospital did well was they were accommodating to my um, my veganism. Oh, that, really? Oh, yeah, nice. that they, they had a nutritionist. Well, I mean, they were trying to convince me to eat differently, but they did have a nutritionist come and speak with me who would work with me. Mm-hmm. Um, around my my eating needs, but but yeah, in the hospital, I I, I mean, I had to uh, eat. It was the food was just you know I, I it was different. But I, I I ate so that was good, and I I slept because they were making they were giving me medication that made me sleep. And so were you when you went in, you were pretty sleep deprived. Is that right? Yeah. Well, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't feel tired. You didn't feel <laughs> but tired. I hadn't but slept in three days. You know, like I just, right. <laughs> exactly. Those usually go go along with each other, not feeling tired and not sleeping for three days. Um, yes. I had tons of energy. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> I could have exactly. gone on not sleeping. I would have been fine. <laughs> right. So how did you get out of the hospital then? I mean, what? How, this is a pretty, pretty, pretty low point in the story here. What? How did you get out after five weeks? So what happened? Um, they just, I guess they let me. I mean, I guess they thought I was... Um, Okay enough or, yeah. to be released. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I did the whole weekend pass thing and day pass and this, like baby steps to getting out of hospital and, and reintegrating into regular life. Um, so, you know, it was a process. It wasn't like I was just out. But um, I, I got out of the hospital and I went home with my family who um, I come from this really supportive and wonderful family and, and Things like this generally don't happen in my family, uh, so they didn't really know how to deal uh, with it, and they just, uh, I think they just followed orders in a lot of ways, and the doctors would were telling them that they had to, you know, make sure that I was taking my medication at all times, and um, I think that they were getting a lot of messages that they had to be really strict and controlling with me, so they were... <laughs> and I really didn't want to be on the medications because I, I didn't, I found them very dulling, and I, I didn't feel like myself on them, and it was really hard to live. It was really hard to learn and to read and to 
think and grow and feel. It was just, I hated, I hated being on them. So basically what I did was, but my family said that they would kick me out of the house if I didn't take my medication. Wow. You know, I think this is all a part of, like, you know, the doctor's messages of how important it was and, and the fear that I might go crazy again, you know? So right. This, this fear that they don't want to see that happen to me again, so they're going to do everything in their power to make sure it doesn't, and even if it means, you know, forcing this, this medication that I really didn't want. So um, what I did was I, I was really devious about the medication, and I would have to get my blood levels taken to make sure that everything was okay with my meds. So what I would do is I would just, I wouldn't take the medication. I'd get my blood levels taken once a month, so I wouldn't take the medication for three weeks. And then the the (laughs) week before I would get my blood levels taken, I would sort of double up on my medication every day. And it would be the week from hell, you know? So like once a month I'd have this week from hell and, uh, it, it worked. Yeah, that's a, that's a very interesting strategy. You'll have to remember that one in terms of, of counseling folks at the Freedom <laughs> don't, Center. Don't, don't encourage that. <laughs> right. It was well, awful. Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing, the thing that's dangerous about that is that taking medications has toxic effects, but if you go up and down and up and down, that really is very hard on mm-hmm. your system, and um, it can cause a lot of problems, especially it sounds like you were taking like mood stabili- stabilizers like lithium or lithium, something. Lithium, yeah, I was on lithium. Yeah, it's really, it's a very toxic um, medication. And so if you are confusing the people who are monitoring you about what how much is in your blood, that can be a dangerous situation. Maybe not so much if you're, you know, young and healthy, but um, it's dangerous, I think, for everybody. So just for anybody who's listening to, <laughs> listening yeah, to this, this is not an advised strategy. There's, if you need to, if you need to trick your doctors and, and your family, there's other ways to do it that are safer <laughs> to do it. Um, so you, so you kind of like pursued your own path with, um, getting off, well, getting off the medications at least three weeks out of, out of four. And then, and then when did things start to come together for you? When did things kind of start switching? Did your parents start taking a different point of view or did you start getting better or? Well, I, I, I mean, I was in those two years that I was, you know, doing this craziness with the medication. I was, you did, I was you okay. Did, like I was doing okay. You did that strategy for two years? I did that strategy and no one And no one knew? Nope. Wow. That's, um, that's pretty remarkable. That's kind of like digging a tunnel out with a spoon in the back of the cell or something over years. That's, um... Yeah. I've never heard of something like that. That's really amazing. Um, and it, it seems like it worked for you. You were able to kind of keep keep a hold of the part of your personality that you felt was valuable and important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was it was really awful, though. <laughs> like, it was really when uh, the weeks that I would have to take the medication was really awful. But yeah. I, I'm still amazed to this day that that, that worked. Like, and I don't the, understand how blood levels work and all of that stuff, but it just blows my mind that, that no one... They didn't, know. they didn't know. They didn't know. They'd not even. Wow, it's amazing. Um, so but then, anyway, yeah. So um, then, what? Then what happened after you doing that for two well, years? Well, I um, I was eighteen, and I said, I mean, at that point, I was going away to college pretty soon, and I uh, I told my parents what I had been doing. So I said, you know, I'm going off my medication now, and I want you to know that I've pretty much been off it for the past two years. I've only been taking it just when I get my blood levels taken, so you would think I was on it, and. Um, I'm just not doing it anymore. I'm just not going to take it. So, I mean, at that point, they were like, well, she hasn't really been taking it for two years, I guess, <laughs> you know? Right, they couldn't really argue with you. Yeah, much, they yeah. were like, okay, then. So um, so then I then I went away to school. And, and um, since then, I've been uh, 
pretty much off medication. There's just been two periods where I've decided to access medication as a tool to help me in times of um, extreme states. But for the most part, I, um, I haven't been on medication. And I like to tell this is, I started working for um, a consumer survivor organization, which means that the organization that I worked for, everybody who worked there was a psychiatric survivor. So it was a mental health drop-in center and a resource center. This is in, uh, in Toronto? In, in Richmond Hill, oh, okay. which is just north of Toronto. It's called the Craftsman Center. And um, I had, I'd, gotten, I'd started getting a really well-rounded education on the mental health system and on psychiatry just from working there. And eventually I, I decided I was going to call my psychiatrist. I was going to call that woman from so long ago, you know, and I called her, and it took me a while to get to get her to actually call me back. I was going through her secretary and her receptionists and all that. But eventually she called me back, and I said, um, I don't know if you remember me. And she said, oh, yeah, I remember you. And I said, well, I'm just calling to let you know that, you know, I'm, I don't, I'm not on medication. And since I left the hospital, I uh, graduated from two different college programs. I got married. I had a baby. Um, I work full-time in a mental health center, and I live a really well and full life, and I'm not on medication. And I'm telling you this because I want you to think about that when you're working with young people um, and the kinds of messages that you send them about what their life can be. And you know what she said to me? What did she, she say said, to you? Frankly, Krista, it scares me that you're not on medication. You have a mental illness, and as a preventative measure, you need to be on medication. You could have an episode at any time incredible even with all that evidence in yeah. front of her and then and without even actually doing any kind of clinical uh, yeah. in, invest uh, uh, examination of you or any kind of detailed look at what was going on with you she would just say that to you over the phone yeah unbelievable after, after so long unbelievable yeah so i mean at that point that had been i hadn't seen her i guess it was six years or something like that so it was six or seven years later or something bad at math but yeah, and then um, I got off the phone and I, I spoke to my colleague and I said, can you believe she said that to me? And my colleague laughed and she said, well, the same could be said for her, that an episode could happen to her anytime. So That's maybe right. Maybe she should be on medication <laughs> as a preventative right. measure too. That's right. That's <laughs> like, a good really, point. You know? Yeah, it seems, like they, it seems like faced with someone who's basically doing, doing fine, they can either say, well, you're not doing fine, or they can say, well, you actually never had a problem to begin with, yeah. <laughs> which is you were misdiagnosed to begin with or something. Yeah. But, you know, I'm interesting because, you, you know, you, you work now in family advocacy work. And I'm just, I'm just wondering, you know, when you look back um, at the time of your life when you were suicidal and you were um, cutting and then you got into a lot of different drugs and you went to these very wild uh, states that ultimately ended up you, you being hospitalized, what, I mean, why do you think that happened? I mean, what was going on? And I'm wondering, because it's, you know, you were 14, 15, 16, what kind of role was your family playing? I'm not talking about blaming mm. your family, but understanding what role they might have played in, in this. Or, or you mentioned that they're very supportive. I mean, do you, maybe they didn't play a role. Yeah. But what's, what's your sense now looking back of why it was that you were going through that kind of period of your life? Yeah, you know what? I, um... I really don't know why why I had those extreme emotions and and why I decided to get involved in doing drugs because um I mean a lot of people I know that a lot of people who 
who have these extreme emotions come from a place of having experienced really hard family life or extreme poverty and and that wasn't the case with me like my family was always this like i you know i it was this typical nuclear like i did the ballet classes and all that stuff as a child um i had i had some sexual trauma as a really young child that i don't even remember um and i don't think that that's related i mean when i try and think back to what could have you know what could have made this happen and i know that i don't know i that's the only thing that happened in my life that was that I don't even remember happening, but that was um, awful <laughs> because well, I pretty much have, you know. Well, the other direction to go is that maybe, I mean, maybe the sort of delusional belief that you had about your destiny, maybe that's what was really happening. I and mean, maybe this was some kind of spiritual awakening or some kind of positive mystical process that actually only kind of went bad because of the way that you got tangled up in, in the system. Is that mm-hmm. one way of possibly looking? I mean, how do you... Do you still have those experiences of coincidences and a sense of destiny and meaning and purpose and your specialness and kind of like a mystical sort of connection with the universe anymore? Yeah. Or is that still a past thing? Or is that something you have now? That, yeah, that's such an interesting question because um, I, some, that's what I wonder. I really wonder, like, had I not been, because I was, I was 16 years old. I was, having, I was doing very risky behaviors, right? But I wonder sometimes, had I not gotten entangled in all that hospital stuff, if I just would have figured it out and it would have, it just, you know, things would have, cause, because the hospital and the, all of that was so traumatic and it infected my life, you know, my, for, for so long. I wonder if, I sometimes wonder if it, it could have just been handled on my own in my own way and if things might have worked out differently. But about, about the, do I still have that? It's interesting because a lot of, I didn't talk about this earlier, but a lot of my unusual beliefs were really highly spiritual moments and, um, and thoughts. And now, I'm getting better now, but, but as a result of my being labeled, um, I noticed that it was, it was really hard for me to embrace any kind of spirituality because it would scare me. Like, any time I would have a spiritual experience, I'd be like, I'm, I'm, I'm having delusions or... Um, mm. It really robbed me of my spirituality and my faith. Because when you when you talk about spiritual experience, you don't mean you know picking up a Bible or going to a church. You're talking about having an actual encounter with like yeah. <laughs> God, yeah, like right, yeah. like a real mystical experience, and that might remind you of how terrible went all that went wrong before. Exactly. So it feels a little, it feels scary. So how where are you with that now? I mean, are you starting to open up more to that and? Yeah, I am. I'm. I'm slowly, open, slowly, and cautiously opening myself more up to that, and I'm kind of resentful that I have to be so slow and cautious yeah. about it. Yeah, it's, but, um, it's funny. It reminds me a lot of my own story. Not to sidetrack, but that's one of the reasons I ended up in Northampton because I was really off the deep, deep end with spiritual stuff. I've talked yeah. a little bit about this on the radio show before. In California, I just really went off the deep end, and so. Northampton has been very like not spiritual experience for me because of like just trying to take care of myself. Yeah. But then you feel like you're in a prison because this is part of who you are. You you these are amazing mystical side of us and it's yes, it's tangled up in madness, but there's got to be some way of of separating it out so it doesn't have to be about trauma and mm-hmm. going into crisis and getting overwhelmed, but actually you can connect with that spiritual mystical reality because it sounds like there was a lot of truth in what you were going through and what you were experiencing. 
Yeah, well, there was a lot of untruth in it, too, you know, because it's easy for me to romanticize it. But Right, that's the, the danger. How do you navigate not romanticizing it but not uh, dismissing it either? Yeah. Well, how do you take care of yourself um, these days? I mean, you're, you're working um, as a family advocate. And what kinds of things, you, you said you're not on medication or you said you use it um, intermittently as a, mm-hmm. as a wellness tool. What kinds of things keep you kind of together as someone who has this side to yourself? Yeah. Well, I, like I do, I mean, I do a lot of things to stay well. Like I, I practice yoga pretty regularly and, um, I write and I'm a photographer and I do a lot of arts, art, art related hobbies. Um, so I, I stay well by being connected to people too, in a lot of ways. And you have a family. Yeah. You have two, two kids. Yeah. I have two young boys. Yeah. Six and one. Do you think that helps kind of keep you connected and keep you, um, in touch with people and keep you well? Yeah, for sure. For Mm -hmm. sure it does because, because it's, um, in some ways, I can't indulge in in my. I I can't indulge in my ruminating, and, uh, right? Because I, you know, there's there's stuff to be done and diapers to be changed and and in in keeping busy. Sometimes I think that uh, that prevents me from slipping into. I still slip into um, into really low places sometimes, but but I think that having my family is it's a real motivator for me to to not slip too deep what do you do when you slip into those into those places i ride it out you ride it out just remind yourself that it's not going to last and just yeah stay with it yeah and i seek for i seek solace in poetry and in art and in Mm. music but i ride it out i you know because it's it you have to Mm. You have to write it out. So let's talk about the work that you do um, now. Tell us what exactly is your job at the family um, outreach? Um, what is it called again? The family, the family outreach and response program. Family outreach and response program. What? How does that work? What kinds of things do you do you do with people there? This this program is a service to families. Uh, if you want to relate it to my story, it would be like my parents could have called here and said. My daughter is displaying all these unusual behaviors, and or my daughter's in the hospital, and we're totally we don't know what to do, or you know. So so it's just it's a service where families can can come here, and we go there. We go into their homes. We we offer them support wherever they want. If they want us to come to the hospital with them, we can do that. And it's um it's a support for them, and it comes from a perspective. We're all the people who work here are either family members themselves of someone who's had really extreme mind states or they're someone who's had um, experiences like that themselves. So we come from a place of, you know, to some degree we've been in a place similar to where you are now, and um, we relate to the families on a really human and personal level about what's happening for them in their family, and we try and give them as much information as we can about alternative types of treatments and um, the all sorts of different ways you can look at what is happening and all sorts of different ways you can find meaning in what's happening in your family and and how you can support someone who's really struggling. So it sounds like it's very different than the kind of mainstream medical approach to these crises that most people encounter. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there are a lot of approaches 
that like a lot of family programs, the approaches that they take are um, education about mental illness. So a lot of the family support organizations run, um, you know, eight or ten week courses that teach about the different diagnoses, like there'll be a week on schizophrenia maybe, and then the next week will be on mood disorders, and the next week will be on medications that can be used to treat that. And so um, the next week might be on navigating the service system. So this is, this is like a typical psychoeducational family group that, that families find themselves in when someone's experiencing unwellness in the family. So this, what we do is a departure from that in that we tell, we tell families, if you want um, a medical education about what's happening with your relative, then these are the programs that you might be interested to go to. But if you want to look at it from um, just more of a, a human perspective and a, a recovery perspective and different ways of framing this, then you can come take our course and we'll, we, we talk about, we share with families stories of psychiatric survivors and... Um, we share with families the things that psychiatric survivors have said that they've found helpful, and we try and get a lot of guest speakers to come in and tell their stories of recovery and things like that so that families have um, a real practical understanding of the, the complex human emotions involved in madness and mental health labeling and, and all this type of thing. Um, so does it help the families and the people who are going through distress? I mean, how does this actually um, serve folks? Um, I think that a lot of families say that, that it shifts something for them, that it, a lot of families, will, after they come to our courses or our education nights or the peer support nights, they'll say that coming here helps them to really listen to their relative and it helps them to see their relative as going through like, a complicated human process. And it, and it takes, for a lot of people, they say that, they feel less afraid of what's happening in their family when they come to this course or when they come speak with us here. I think that a big part of it is, is um, hope so, that, so they see that recovery is possible and common and, and it happens in all different types of people in all different ways and there's all sorts of paths to recovery and some are short and some are long. But, but there's talk about recovery and it's not so focused on these are symptoms and this is what you can expect and you know, it's, it's more hopeful and open than that. So families, what families get from that is, is a sense of future that I think that isn't really the message that's generally given from the system. Are people less likely to end up in the hospital or end up on medications or end up sort of promoting the, uh, the labeling and the disease framework? Um, we do. One of the weeks we talk about language specifically, and we talk about the types of language, and we talk about um, how even, you know, even in the family home, the types like saying, um, just uh, viewing everything through a lens of, of the mental illness, the big bad mental illness. So, you know, are, are, are you experiencing delusions right now? Or <laughs> like using all this medical language when you're speaking with your relative, how that can be... Um, that can be hurtful to somebody and that somebody might not view their experiences in that same way. So we talk about, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but we talk about um, using different language and, and even, even the term mental illness, right? Like who wants to be called ill? So we talk about trying to avoid using that kind of illness language in the home.
Do you guys get criticism from other organizations? Like we have NAMI, the National Alliance for mm-hmm. the Mentally Ill in the U.S., and um, they can they take a pretty narrow perspective. <laughs> and Freedom Centers actually run into quite a number of problems with one of the local NAMI chapters in the past. I, I know a number of people who are members of NAMI who, who are great and they're connected to it because it's one of the only thing that's really around. And there are people who get you know good support from them. But a lot of it is very much... It's a disease. You've got to take your meds, yeah. lock them up if they get out of control kind of yeah. thing. And so do you, do you find that you get criticized from other, um, other family groups or other people who have a different perspective on the situation? Um, well, an interesting thing is happening in Ontario uh, in that as a service system, Ontario has adopted a recovery policy or um so there's actually in this in the systemic documents um there are there are there's this idea that we're we've agreed to be recovery oriented i'm not sure how well recovery is defined um because a lot of people for a lot of people recovery you know it's become this commodified word i think that's that's used in the mental health system but you know, in some ways, because of that, we're able to do the work that we do. <laughs> so because, because we are all in Ontario supposed to be striving to be a recovery-oriented system, um, some people interpret that very differently. Some people interpret that really medically, um, and we don't interpret it in that way necessarily. Uh, yeah, there's been a there's been a kind of interpretation of recovery, which means you know take your meds, believe right. in your diagnosis, and then go to your volunteer job, mm-hmm. you know, and just kind of be stabilized and be out of the hospital. And that's yeah. really and kind yay, of a, you've recovered. Yeah, it's really kind <laughs> of a twisting around the. I, I was wondering, what about a situation where the family is really the problem when there's child abuse going on, or there's um, you know, physical violence going on in the family, or the family is is trapped in some kind of really crazy communication pattern where the everybody's got all these their own his the parents have their own history of trauma and then they just get really into these i mean everyone i think a lot of us have the experience of our families or families that we know of just being really dysfunctional i don't like that word so much but there's a lot of problems that that can really create the what what gets labeled as mental illness and i know that it's it's not fashionable to really talk about the families as the problem, and I'm not blaming families because I know that there's a lot of other factors, but a lot of times there there's some pretty toxic families yeah. out there. How do you how do you deal with those kinds of situations? Well, I think that I mean a, a lot of information is on our website about what we do, and I think that a lot of people actually find us through our website, and usually the people that find this organization are people who families who are really, really wanting to help. And because we, ta- we talk about the kind of work that we do on the website, I think, I think that a lot of families that are abusive just don't, aren't interested in, in getting service from us to some extent because it's, I, I don't know. But so you're already, you're already attracting the alternative kind of approach, I, people yeah, who are open to, to that degree, sort of perspective. Yeah, yeah. So they, because a lot happens. of, in the U.S., I mean, people just don't have any, pl- families that don't buy into the mainstream system don't have anywhere else to turn. There's, I mean, there are so many times when family members come to the Freedom Center and I, I mean, I, I wish I could just say, hey, call Krista in Toronto, Canada, <laughs> you know, but that's not really very helpful for someone in Northampton, yeah. Massachusetts. Um, so, um, we do have families though that, that there's definitely, there are definitely dynamics happening in the family home that are not healthy. And 
I mean, all you can do with that is keep working, keep working with the family and keep talking to the family about, about ways to be helpful. Is there and a hope that that information sinks in and might create some shift in behavior in the home. So there's not really a connection to family therapy or working with family systems or anything like that? Or is that available to people if they're interested in it? Um, I mean, we do, here we do what we can, but we are a small, we're a pretty small team. And in, in, Ontario, in Ontario, um, health care is, we have you know, free health care here, right? And counseling isn't covered, though, <laughs> under our free health care system. So, so you um, can't get therapy or counseling or family, family right, therapy. Right, so you can get wow. all the psychiatry wow. stuff for free. That's covered under our The meds are free, but system. the talk is not, uh, not but covered. But if you want therapy or family therapy, sometimes that's offered in the hospital, but then it's through this lens of um, uh, medicalizing the problem. Yeah, it's, that's, that's usually people have to pay for that out of their own pocket. So for for family members who are listening now, and also just for anybody who's, you know, maybe struggling with these issues, what would be, because we're, we're running quickly out of time, I'm just wondering what might be some last words, the final words of um, advice or message that you would want folks to, to think about and to be left with? For anybody who's supporting somebody, families specifically, but anybody who's supporting somebody with mental health issues, I think that it can be incredibly powerful to... Um, focus on a person's strengths and things that they're good at and um, not viewing things through this lens of, of disability and symptomology and rather looking at all the things that a person can do well and looking at the struggles that a person has gone through as um, powerful and helpful to them in their life. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? What Do you want to say the, um, the web address of, of your organization? Sure. It's um, familymentalhealthrecovery.org. Familymentalhealthrecovery.org. Yeah. Krista McKinnon, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to an interview with Krista McKinnon, who is a psychiatric survivor and family advocate with Family Outreach and Response Program in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. You can find out more information about um, Krista's work and the Family Outreach and Response Program by going to the website familymentalhealthrecovery.org. You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health. Madness Radio is broadcast every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Pacifica Affiliate, WXOJLPFM 103.3 Valley Free Radio in Northampton, Massachusetts. For our live internet stream, podcasting, show archives, and more, visit madnessradio.net. Madness Radio is co-produced by Freedom Center and The Icarus Project. For more information, check out freedom-center.org and theicarusproject.net. For more mental health radio, listen to the news hour from mindfreedom.org, Wednesdays, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you have an idea for a story or guest on Madness Radio, or you just want to share what's in your head, contact us at radio at madnessradio.net. 